Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. Countryside and the Royal Institute of the Blind went into partnership to build homes. The result is a unique development that uses sound and other senses to make a truly accessible place. Yeah, uh, my name's Simon Cox. I'm Associate Director with Countryside Properties and I've been involved in this particular project since the end of 2014. So I've kind of seen it go through from getting planning consent right the way through to where we are now, which is the show homes open and I'm hoping to get our first occupations later this summer. So tell me where we are. Well, we're um, just to the northeast of Redhill. Um, the site itself used to be the um, RNIB's Community Living Service, so it was accommodation for people who are registered with blind and other visual disabilities, but also with other complex mental health needs such as autism, learning difficulties, etc. Um, so they um, had various different living accommodation here over the last 20, 30 years or so, and as they've been um, gradually moving towards the centre of the site and the more appropriate accommodation. They've had to abandon some of the less appropriate accommodation that was around the outside. There's a mixture of properties here that range from a 14th century grade two listed farmhouse right the way through to some rather attractive 60s um, apartment buildings. So they had people spread uh, round and about. They had about 30 residents at the peak here. And then as I say, as time's gone by, um, a lot of the buildings were struggling maintenance wise and it wasn't viable to maintain those. So they gradually moved to the more uh, centralised locations locations and then back in 2012 really had to make a decision whether they were going to move from this site permanently or make a uh, more drastic decision to um, enter into a joint venture partnership with a developer to provide funding to provide the new accommodation on site itself. So the RNIB, just to talk about them as an, an organisation, it's the Royal National Institute of Blind People. Yeah, that's right. They're a registered um, charity for blind people um, and we've kind of um, been working with them now since way back in 2012. I've got to know quite a few of the people actually working for the charity as well as the residents here and some of their relatives. It's been an interesting project for me over the last uh, five years. And that's different to what you've done before. Have you ever done anything like that before? Uh, we do a lot of joint venture works. A lot of it's with um, Homes England, the government um, partnership, as well as partnerships with local authorities. This is the first one um, I've done with a charity. And I think it's possibly one of the first ones that Countryside themselves has done with a charity. And um, it's very much intended to be the exemplar of how a developer could work with a charity to um, provide new accommodation that's specific for their needs, as well as providing new accommodation for the private market. So how has that changed, that partnership changed what, what we're looking at here, which is the model of this development? Well, what we've had to do is make sure that not only do we provide um, suitable accommodation for uh, the, the private market, but also suitable accommodation for the RNIB and their residents. Um, we will always um, employ architects, etc., to design what we think is the most appropriate accommodation for the private market. But obviously here we had to get very close involvement with the RNIB, their residents, their carers, their parents, to try and develop um, accommodation that would actually suit their needs, not just what we thought would be best for them, but what they actually wanted. So um, it's been a very iterative design process right the way through from the early stages pre-planning through to now and we're choosing the colour of walls, colour of car carpets, etc. So it's been a very um, lot more inclusive process in terms of designing the accommodation for people who are actually going to be living there than it is if we're designing product that just goes straight onto the, onto the private market. So some of those features, can you describe um, how they work and, and what, 
I mean, what, what, what will people yeah. see when this is uh, built out? What will they experience? Well, the whole sort of concept of the development is inclusivity. So there's nowhere on the development that's specific for RNIB. There's nowhere um, on the development that is um, more easily accessible than anywhere else. The entire development will um, comply with lifetime homes requirements in terms of the gradients and the surfacing and the materials. Um, all of the RNIB accommodation is wheelchair adaptable and half of it is fully wheelchair accessible at the moment. So the sort of idea was there'd be nowhere that looks as if it's specifically designed for able-bodied people or disabled-bodied people. When we first came here, it very much felt like a, an institution in that nobody really came past the front door unless you were um, actually visiting somebody here or you lived here. It was very uh, cold and empty place and uh, all the doors were a specific colour um, to suit people with visual disabilities and there was yellow barriers all the way along the roads for people to kind of feel the way along. And it didn't feel like somewhere that if there was a house for sale down here as a private market purchaser you particularly want to buy. Um, so what we wanted to do was obviously develop the new accommodation for the RNIB as well as the private market accommodation, but make it seem just like any other new housing bill development if you were just coming to, to purchase here. So some of the key things were working out how we can um, help people travel and work their way around the development if you are visually impaired or physically disabled. So as well as um, dealing with some of the levels to make them a lot uh, less challenging in terms of the gradients, we've also included the sort of central piece of the scheme, which is the sensory trail. So rather than having to, if you're visibly impaired, having to feel your way around a development, follow a barrier or whatever, you can navigate through the development itself through different senses such as um, hearing, touch, scent um, from different plants etc. So some of the key things in that are the different scents of different plants as you go through so you can um, understand where you are by a different scent of different plant. In terms of hearing we've got different materials so you can feel differently how it is underneath or how it sounds when you walk along it. We've got rumble strips um, of differing sizes going throughout the scheme so if you're walking along the footpath and you hear cargo past the rumble strip you can work out where you are from that noise and also um, there's various different wayfinding points in terms of the lamp columns We've got different lamp column sizes and shapes at different points. So gradually, as you've lived here for some time, you can work out through either touching or tapping the, the lamp columns um, whereabouts you are. So I see he hedges or mm -hmm. some kind of a, is that also a way to have a, a barrier that you can feel that's between Absolutely. the Absolutely. Um, kind of as well as the sort of, um, the, the feel of the development in terms of it being very mature landscapes. We did want some kind of um, physical barrier just to stop anybody accidentally walking into the road itself. So we have got hedges all the way along separating the road principally from the um, from the, the sensory trail itself. But we have got designated crossing points. As you can see, each one's marked with a lamp column and also a rumble strip going across the road itself. So people know exactly where they can cross safely and where they can't. Um, one of the other points of the rumble strips was if in uh, the future everybody's got electric cars, at least you'll still hear the sound of the tyres going over the rumble strips to know there is a car or a vehicle coming past. And the rumble strips at intersections are different to the ones that are at crossings? Absolutely. So again, when the car goes over those, you can understand better where you are in terms of um, your position within the, the estate itself. How important is it that the paving has different contrast? colours. How important was that? That's um, very important. That kind of applies to the paving as well as a lot of the internal decorations. Um, we had to have a 50 point uh, light difference between different materials to um, get the, the difference in contrast so anybody who's got slight visual impairment knows um, whether they're coming to the end of a kerb or not. And that applies to the rumble strip paving, it applies to the difference between the kerb and the road and also internally it applies to um, things like skirting boards, architraves around doors, uh, light switches and walls and doors etc. It, it looks like it's a shared surface scheme over mm -hmm. near the residence. Is that a concern around? 
Yeah, there's a sort of a conflict between the shared surface side of things in that if it is shared surface, people take extra care when they're driving along there, whereas if they're on a road, people think they can um, sort of carry on as it were but we have still got um, a slight uplift on the footpath as you go around there so again you know whether you are on a footpath or whether you're on a road and um, the intention being that people who are driving along that small area they are cul-de-sacs or dead ends so it um, very much encourages people to take care of themselves and from their neighbours. In terms of colours, um, what have you gone for in terms of um, contrast? I think you mentioned sometimes doors need to be different colours. Absolutely. We've picked a number of different paint colours for the walls, which will be a kind of a base pe uh, for people when they first move in. But the intention is people can paint their walls whatever colour they like uh, once they're inside. But some of the key things are having a contrast between the door and the architrave that goes around the door so you can clearly see where your, your door is. And even if it's not the door and the architrave, we have a what they call a leading edge, which is the first couple of centimetres of the door itself where it closes into the architrave being a different colour to that. So we'd have a, a white door and a darker colour architrave and also with uh, light switches rather than having a, a light, white light switch on a light coloured wall, we'd either have a dark wall and a white light switch or a darker colour light switch on a lighter coloured wall. How much do you think this will change the way that you design things going forward? It's been very much a learning process for me and also anybody who's kind of been involved in this because there's so many little things um, like the, the changes in materials, the sensory trail that we can incorporate on any future development without it having to be specific to Iron Abbey or otherwise. So there's lots of um, things we've learned through the development that we're going to incorporate going forward and again just try and make any development that we do a lot more inclusive whether they are for able-bodied people, people with physical disabilities or visual impairment. I know you mentioned there's a kind of community hub building. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what's happening there? Yep, um, one of the buildings that was retained on the development itself um, is called Tudor House and that's Grade 2 listed. It started off as a 14th century farmhouse and then has been gradually extended and expanded over the years and was a schoolhouse at the time where this was a school. Um, obviously being Grade 2 listed we needed to make or uh, find a use within there that would maintain that building for in perpetuity and being the RNIB uh, a large charity they were the ideal candidate to go in there. So they wanted to keep some kind of um, office and community hub on the state to replace what was here before which was a, um, a small office building and reception area and the uh, Tudor House seemed the ideal opportunity for that. So as part of the refurbishment um, proposals for that building we are going to be providing new office accommodation in there. There's about eight offices, a conference room facility, there's a two-bedroom apartment on top and also a cafe and reception area that will be open to everybody to um, pop in and have a cup of coffee and have a sit down um, in the reception area. And you've got um, a pathway, you said, through here that leads to a local school. That's right. There's a public footpath that um, crosses over the railway bridge and then leads up into uh, Philanthropic Road, which goes right in front of Tudor House. Uh, it's a very well-used public footpath with um, school children and people going to the um, elderly people's home across the way. So I do see people dropping in, not only from the development itself, but from round about to have a cup of coffee in Tudor House. So what were some of the challenges when it came to um, winning planning and getting this development off the ground? It's been a very 
um, technically challenging the scheme to to say the least, um, as well as the sort of the social side of it of developing the RNIB dwellings. We've had technical challenges in terms of gaining planning consent. Um, we are in the green belt here, and unless there are very special circumstances, you wouldn't normally get any um, planning permission for any new development. So we had to prove that what we were doing here um, was the absolute minimum required to um, facilitate the new RIB accommodation and provide them with a sinking fund for future maintenance. Um, we managed to do that through a viability argument with both district councils. Um, the site itself is split across two um, district council bands. We've got Rygate and Banstead Borough Council on the western side and then Tandridge District Council on the eastern side. Both have got different priorities in terms of what they wanted for the site. Um, Tandridge being very much focusing on maintaining a sort of a green lung through the site itself, minimising development and um, kind of maximising the open space that was retained. Whereas on the Rygate side, very much their focus was on the listed building and making sure we'd got the right proposals for that and um, making sure it was going to be maintained in perpetuity going forward. That kind of explains this different flavour, which I noticed but wasn't sure what was causing it because you've got this one side of the site that, that perhaps has more common green space, yeah. um, although it still has private gardens. And then actually on this side, it's more private garden focused, although there's still, you know, green verges around the train lines. Yeah, and you'll notice as well, the architecture on the um, eastern side is much more contemporary. And then as we come slowly towards the west, we start getting a bit more traditional until the sort of buildings directly opposite Tudor House um, are very traditional and take some of their elevational styles and uh, features from Tudor House itself. Tudorish. Yes, yeah, we're not trying to um, copy what was there, as it were, but some of the features, like you'll notice, um, the, the crisscross brickwork um, on there comes from Tudor House. So, uh, again, just a couple of features that we've picked up from. Who did you work with in terms of for the architecture? Um, there's a company called GSA who did the, um, the planning scheme for us, and they're still involved as the design architect for Tudor House doing the internal proposals on there. Um, and then we've got um, various different design consultants working on the technical side of it. Technically, you had some decontamination to do? Yeah, technically it was quite challenging in terms of um, a lot of challenges that we had to kind of deal with individually um, for this site. Nothing that we haven't done before, but they all seem to be joined together on this particular site. So we had significant service diversions to do before we could start demolition. Um, we had asbestos removal to do before we could physically knock down the buildings. And then there was the demolition itself. When we were excavating the foundations, they were significantly larger than anything we kind of expected, um, which then led on to more challenging uh, foundation solutions. In terms of contamination, there was various different hotspots of uh, contamination throughout the site and also quite a lot of Japanese knotweed that we had to remediate and deal with before we could even sort of start looking at uh, some of the more levels issues that are across the site to try and make it suitable for, for gradients and uh, lifetime homes. So a huge challenge it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, it's, we've had to look at the entire site as one rather than splitting it into phases because there's been a lot of cut and fill of material, um, reducing high levels in some places and then building up levels in others to try and minimise the gradients in between. Um, that's meant that we've had to, say, treat the site as one whole um, rather than looking at individual phases. So there's been a lot of money spent up front and an entirely new drainage system, entirely new utility services system and an entirely new road network system gone through. What's been your thinking or what is your current thinking around cars? I mean, we kind of have the sense that they're going to disappear or be less so, but then we're not in a city centre location, so they would seem essential for access. Then again, you've got a train line going through, but it's not immediately accessible stations. Yeah, so. I think we're, we're in a good location here for um, 
Red Hill Station, we're probably just less than two miles away from that station itself. And I think certainly for the next foreseeable future, there are still going to be people who want cars and want the, the flexibility of cars. Um, every property on here has got at least two parking spaces, and even the RNIB accommodation has got a parking space for each plot, uh, on the assumption that in five years' time we might be having driverless cars. So it's kind of been designed to be future-proof, but also suit the, uh, the, sort of the needs and requirements of people um, today. I think there's nothing worse than providing one parking space, assuming everybody's only going to have one car, but they've all got two or three, so they end up lining the roads. And again, that's not particularly convenient for um, residents walking up and down. So you're kind of hedging your bets. <laughs> yeah, I think whatever we do has got to be suitable for the, the, the current demands and needs. Um, we try very much to focus on customer services and not having um, adequate car parking or not providing adequate car parking is one of the very big complaints people have. So. Um, the days of sort of not providing parking, assuming that that will stop people having cars, uh, never really sort of worked out. So I think there's other encouragements at the moment to try and reduce car use, but for the time being, we still need to find some way of uh, dealing with car parking in a landscaped way that doesn't impact on the, the roads and the footpaths. Do you see a different private customer um, being attracted to the site because of some of the extra things that you've done? Um, the Properties themselves are very big because of the uh, levels challenge you've had to deal with. Um, when we're stepping down through different um, gradients, a lot of the properties are two-storey on one side and three-storey on the other. So we've almost got an extra storey or half-storey of accommodation on the buildings, which makes them relatively expensive to build and also quite large. So they are at a very um, high price point here. So I think we probably are looking at the second time um, buyer market or downsizing market. So we're looking probably at that sort of level rather than first-time buyer here again that's not a conscious choice to focus that type of market it's just been as a result of the, uh, the topographical and the physical challenges of the site so perhaps because of the size of the units but then maybe not specifically because of the actual kind of landscaping absolutely yeah i think i say it's been designed to be accessible for all um, as we've got a um, a number of three bed properties but majority of them are the larger four and five beds again driven not necessarily by what we see the market being but how the landscape has led it so uh, we aren't assuming a very quick um, sale and development here it's going to be a, a slow burner for us um, one that's challenging sales wise as well as construction wise can we go for a walk certainly anywhere you like to go um, maybe just a view of this yeah yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> right so in terms of where we were on the model um, we're up on the eastern Eastfield Road side of the development at the moment. Um, one thing I didn't mention was there's 14 properties that are accessed off Eastfield Road and although we've got cycle and pedestrian links through to the rest of the site there is no vehicle link through to prevent rat running coming through the scheme up onto Philanthropic Road itself. So these 14 properties along here um, are kind of almost an exclusive little area by themselves so no vehicle transport through but we are going to have a footpath and cycle route that runs all the way through. You can see up on the uh, eastern side over there just the chimneys of Tudor House peering atop the, uh, the Lebanese cedar tree that are there and then the scaffold that you see directly in front is the start of the RNIB private accommodation, uh, sorry the new build accommodation that's coming forward. Uh, coming closer towards this side we've got what we call the plateau which are some of the bigger properties currently under construction and then you'll also see the um, archway in the centre of the site there which was saved from being um, demolished quite some time back when the, the main church itself was destroyed in the war. So we've managed to keep that within the landscape. Um, 
And what will be around that? Will that be a, a, in a park or? The, it's kind of forms part of um, the central trail runs past it. You won't be able to walk through it as it were, because it does stand kind of now on a plinth due to where we've adjusted the levels. Um, but it's just part of the sort of communal open space and frontage fronting onto that main spine road that comes through the site itself. So it looks like you've basically had to dismantle a hill. Yes. In short, in simple terms. <laughs> um, we had a 20 metre fall from one side of the site to the other, so that's quite challenging in itself. But we'd also got certain pinch points, one being the, uh, the, the cemetery on the northern boundary, and then the others being the fixed points of the, uh, the, church, the, the chapel. And also there's a burial ground just on the, uh, the southern side of the site there. You can just see the top of the lich gate poking over the side there. So obviously those two levels were sacrosanct. We couldn't adjust those and we couldn't um, adjust the levels in the graveyard itself to the north. So we've had to put a large retaining wall in on the northern boundary um, and then do various different bits of cut and fill right the way through the scheme itself. Originally the um, main access road used to follow the boundary along the south and there was a large sharp drop off down to um, a depth of about eight meters down here and then Hawthorne Hill which goes up here on the east was pretty much like a ski slope coming down so it was difficult for even anybody without any physical disabilities to walk up and down the site and uh, what we've had to do here is basically put in eight meters of fill uh, directly in front of where we are here now. So you wouldn't think it to look at it now, but that used to be almost like a, a large pit. So that's been filled up um, much more even gradient now throughout the site itself. And that's basically what's going on here. There's still lots of, of preparatory works on this side of the site. But on that side yeah. of the site, will the RNI be, accommodation be finished first? It's um, going to be finished um, in conjunction with the residential development as we go. We're hoping to have our first private occupations in July this year. And then the first part of the RNIB accommodation will be in September this year. Um, they'll be taking Tudor House, which is obviously the hub itself and the offices, as well as um, five bedroomed multi-occupancy house to the um, west of Tudor House, which is called Garden Cottage. There's six new build apartments up there. And then there's also two um, multi-occupancy five bedroom houses coming out of the ground as well, just behind the chapel there. So they'll take all of that accommodation in one go. Um, part of the reason for that is in terms of having staff here, it's much more viable if they've got 20 odd bedrooms rather than just the, the, the few that are around Tudor House. And also that when they move their residence in, they want to feel that they are in a completed development, not uh, half into and half out of a building site. So we want to make sure that anything round and about the RNIB accommodation is fully complete, fully um, finished before moving anybody back in. And that's because we've got this complex mix of needs that absolutely. could be really stressful to yes. live in a building yeah, site. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, some are more sort of um, adaptable to change than others, but um, we've kind of moved them from where they're, they're, they were living here before to um, a temporary accommodation in Epsom and now kind of moving them back in. What we hope to do is bring them for different visits um, over the next couple of months or so as construction develops, just to get them a bit more familiar again with where they're, um, they're, they're going to be living. In terms of the sensory trail, so it leads from Tudor House, Is that how does that work in terms of bringing you in and out of the site? Yeah, we've got um, the RNIB accommodation um, pepper potted or clusters as it were along the main spine road itself. So that starts up with Tudor House, then there's the two semi-detached properties. And as we get down to here, we've got another three, five bedroom multiple occupancy houses and two blocks of apartments, giving them 19 apartments. And that sensory trail basically connects the, uh, the eastern part of the site right the way through back to the western part of the site at Tudor House and off to the main entrance. Was it the RNIB that wanted to 
divide up their properties or was that kind of a shared ambition to I have it? it was a shared ambition that we didn't want anywhere to be specific to RNIB. We didn't want it anywhere to be specific to private market um, purchases. So it's the whole inclusivity idea that everywhere is um, accessible to all. The entire scheme's lifetime homes compliant so anybody can walk and uh, navigate themselves around. Do you think with the ageing population in the UK, do you think this could be a model for um, other, you know, kind of developments that might offer various amounts of support? Absolutely. I think um, so. there's lessons we've learned here that aren't specific to any particular disability, but just making life a bit more convenient for people. So that kind of applies to whether you've got visual impairments or physically disabled. Um, so there's lots of lessons we've learned on gradients and maximizing contrast between colors um, that's going to help us I think through future developments. Which are the ones that because some of it is looks like a, a viability challenge mm -hmm. when you're talking about gradients especially. Yep. Um, so some of that has been obviously enabled by the partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, which are the ones that you think you would say actually you know this is something that we could just do it's not a huge expense or does all of it or does it does it is it an investment you have to make? Yeah it's always an investment. Um, I think what we try and do is provide the best accommodation we can do anyway. So we would have certainly done a lot of regrading. And um, what we don't like to see is big retaining walls all the way through. So some of the lessons we've learned with stepping down um, through the site, using the buildings and having two storey accommodation on one side and three storey on another, um, minimising the sort of the impact of the retaining walls by using gabion walls rather than bricks or concrete, all those sort of things that we'd look at in future. Yes, they do cost money, but they do provide a much more pleasant environment for people to live in. And uh, that's really where our sort of target market is. Do you use any um, different construction techniques here? Are you experimenting with, I don't know, prefabrication or different? We haven't on this particular site. Um, pretty much every unit type we've got here is an individual one. There's none of these um, properties that form part of our sort of standard house type portfolio, as it were. Everything's been specifically designed for this site because of the technical challenge of it. Um, so that's really suited a more traditional construction whereby we're using brick and masonry rather than timber frame. Um, but we've had to pile pretty much every property and um, kind of every property in itself is an individual one. And on other sites, what are you looking at? Yeah, I think generally as, a, um, as an industry, we're probably going towards more off-site manufacture. Um, we've just secured a new um, development opportunity with Homes England in Burgess Hill for 460 homes that will be entirely um, using AMCs on modern methods of construction. And that would be using a timber frame system with a SIPS panel, which is insula insulation um, sandwiched in when it's delivered. So just trying to focus really much more on off-site uh, manufacture to minimise the potential for access mistakes or challenges on site really. So do you think that's the obvious place the industry is going? I think so yeah 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 I mean we've, there's a obviously skills shortage in construction um, which you'll kind of hear about on the news and the more off-site um, we can do the less we need the sort of the skilled labour on site. And are there any other I think um, things that you would predict coming down the line that maybe um, we aren't talking about yet, or other challenges that you're facing that you're, you're, you know, wondering what the next solution is. Um, I think there's constant um, involvements in, in the construction industry, not only on the materials but on sustainability. Um, we can look now at the, the width of the house type walls, even sort of 10 years ago, we're almost half as thick as they are now with the insulation that we put through. Um, the, the air tightness testing, minimising the gaps, etc. It's been a constant involvement really over the last 10 years to minimise energy use and we're focusing much more now on sort of coming away from gas central heating and looking at the potential for electric heating, solar panels on the roofs. There's a number of properties on this development itself that have got solar panels on. So 
they'll be um, providing energy back into the grid. Um, but yeah, certainly a focus more on renewable energy systems rather than gas. And, um, and maybe district district um, district systems. Yeah, district systems. Um, again, I think they take quite a, um, a significant amount of development to become viable. Um, but certainly looking at possibly electric heating rather than gas. And I think certainly over the next couple of years we'll be looking at that as an industry. There's a number of um, developers looking at I know you have some units here um, in order to support uh, some of the tenants where you've got a shared kitchen, but mm -hmm. they're kind of rooms. I mean, there's a number of developers who are kind of specializing in that now. Yeah. How, how, how do you see, is that, do you see that kind of coming forward more frequently or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've obviously talked about an aging population. Not everybody wants to go into what they feel is an old folks home, but somewhere that's just got a bit more support for them um, or been designed with um, sort of the aging population in mind. So I think there's definitely a market for that. Um, there's sort of developers out there who do specific age, specific accommodation. Um, that's not really where our speciality is, but we certainly learned some lessons from this scheme that we can incorporate going forward. So if you were looking um, to advise or kind of explain about how to work with a charity to develop or, or make something like that in order to kind of enable that long-term um, fun to look after the place. I mean, are there lessons we can learn from the way this deal was structured? Yeah, I mean, we um, negotiated with the RNIB a development agreement that in the first instance didn't really commit either party to too much until we knew exactly what we could achieve from the site and what they wanted to. So it was a stage development agreement that we signed back in 2012, um, committed us to sort of doing a bit more investigative work in terms of what the site could potentially cost us to build, what we want out of it as a profit, and then what they wanted out of it as accommodation. So we had these various different checks and levels and conditions as we go through. Um, and once we were happy what uh, the site was going to cost us, happy with what the RNIB wanted out of it and what we wanted out of it in terms of our profit, that sort of led us on to the next level then of committing to putting a planning application in, because um, we weren't sure how the, the sort of planning result would end up. Um, that then obviously led on to a viability argument in terms of the minimum amount of accommodation we could provide on the site to satisfy both our needs. Um, once the planning itself had been resolved, pretty much then we were uh, entirely confident with what we were going to achieve and what the RNIB wanted, and that led us on to the sort of signing the final stage of the development agreement. So it was very much uh, an iterative process going through that neither of us committed um, to beyond what we actually were confident in doing to right until the very end. So that's, that taking the time in the upfront is really important. Yeah, so I think we'll say both of us took little bits of risk as we went forward and then um, took a little bit more risk as we went beyond to the next stage. So nobody really committed uh, right at the very beginning. It was just uh, an agreement to work in partnership with each other. And fortunately, it's worked very well. Um, we've had, say, a lot of input from the RNIB. And uh, I like to think they've had us a lot of construction expertise input from us to deliver that, uh, the accommodation. So other charities that have land and needs that, you know, you think partnership is is an opportunity for that? Absolutely. I think um, the way things were with the RNIB here um, sort of two or three years ago, the really only option was to either sell up and move off. Um, but again, we are in the, uh, the sort of green belt here. Somebody, somebody buying the site, there wasn't a great deal they could do with that without the RNIB support. I think without the RNIB being involved, we certainly wouldn't have got planning permission for what we've got here. Um, and I think obviously that's worked out well for us and it's worked out well for people looking to buy here but it's also very much a, a lovely estate now that's coming forward and uh, i think it's kind of worked out well for all it's a beautiful place mm, absolutely i say i think it's one of the nicest sort of schemes i've got in terms of the landscape and the views you can see right the way through to gatwick airport from the top story here um, and again it's really only through the rnib support that we've got that planning consent to be here well, that just leaves me to thank you very much for speaking to us today. Well, thank you for allowing me to talk so much. I do enjoy talking about it. <laughs> <laughs>
This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. If you like this podcast, you should check out our upcoming Festival of Place on the 9th of July in London. Go to festivalofplace.co.uk.